We are recording, and let's... Oh, fuck. What was that? I forgot to turn off the thing. Was that a uh, text? Yeah. Is it okay? Yeah, it was from Grubhub. Saying what? Did did your food come? Yes, say (laughs) yes, finally, thanks. Hello there, and welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor scene by scene, talk about Harvey Picar, and discuss the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists. I'm Josh Newfeld of joshcomics.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And today we are discussing scene number 12 of American Splendor, which starts at 20 minute and 21 second mark and ends at 23.45. And on the DVD is called Words and Pictures. That's the chapter title. This episode starts with Harvey writing his comics, starting to write old Jewish ladies in supermarket lines, and ends with him being cured by Robert Crumb. (laughs) That is a funny bit, actually. Yeah, as you said, the scene begins with Harvey writing a comic script, what happened with the old Jewish lady in the grocery store in the previous scene, and the camera pans into Harvey's face as night turns into day and the music transitions from gloomy to jazzy bebop, you know, uh, signifying that he's been writing all night long and been up all day. And then we cut to Harvey sitting in a diner with Robert Crumb, and he's showing Crumb some of his new scripts. Stories about modern day stuff. Crumb is wearing a hat, a straw boater, to signify a certain era in his career, I believe. I think he was a little more famous at this point, and that was kind of like a costume that he would wear, you know, presumably of sorts, an identifier. And Picar pitches that animal comics and superheroes are limited to kids, and he's trying to do something different, kind of like what Crumb does with his underground comics for adults, where you can get political and subversive. And Crumb appears intrigued by Picard's scripts as he reads it and asks if they're, if they're all about him, and Harvey says yes. He purports that ordinary life is pretty complex stuff. Crumb digs what Harvey is trying to do, and Picard, portrayed by Paul Giamatti, literally cracks, breaks his tough guy, no-nonsense facade, and looks happy, actually thrilled, with the notion that Crumb sanctions his new approach to comic book writing, and in a way, this scene marks a proactive paradigm shift in Picard's desire to express himself through comics. A proactive paradigm shift. Oh, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> because this is what's going to... Well, it's like scientific. Yeah, well, well Crumb suggests he'll, he'll take some of these scripts back and illustrate them, and as we know, the rest is history. I yes. Mean, this is, this a, is the a really moment. important moment in his life. Yeah, and I know he had talked about other stuff. For Picard, it was really important that he write authentic, non-idealized, and non-phony stuff. He makes a point of that in this scene. No phony bullshit. Right. Which is funny because of the bit where when he does crack, you know, he's sitting there kind of grumpy. He's probably nervous and somewhat shy showing what he's done here to Crumb. Totally. And Crumb's, you know, kind of takes his time to basically say, you know what? This is pretty good stuff. I Mm -hmm. like what you're doing here. There's that pregnant pause where you don't know what he's going to say. What's he going to say? And then when he sanctions it he says it's good you know i want to illustrate this stuff he literally cracks and Mm -hmm. his voice in fact 
when he shouts his relief, you know, his voice sounds normal almost, and Crumb calls him out on it as if suggesting some of Picard's perpetual pain is a little bit fake as well, you know? Uh -huh. I, I had not made that uh, mm -hmm. relationship until studying the scene right now, you know? And it creates an interesting tension kind of between Crumb and Picard because of the whole idea that Picard Harvey is trying to be authentic, mm -hmm. but he's also portraying a certain kind of character as well. In fact, doesn't Crumb say... Are you the hero of your own stories? Yeah. He's like, you know? you're the comic hero. Yeah. So I thought that, that was interesting. And then there's another funny bit when uh, Picar says that Crumb's comics are subversive. Crumb asks Harvey to pass the ketchup, mm -hmm. which couldn't be more Americana and non-subversive <laughs> in uh. some ways, if you think about it. You know, like to me, it's like apple pie, you know, ketchup. Yeah baseball you know right, right. apple pie and mom you know but that was also put in there as a sort of a misdirection right for the story where you kind of are being led to think oh well he's not very interested in these stories he's just he's shining Harvey on a little bit absolutely it's that sense of you know if he really was if he loved these stories he wouldn't even think about the ketchup you know sure but and i yeah. and i guess that also shows the style and tone of like how crumb approached things you right. know like Hmm, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. But right, I also thought it was right. kind of another little funny maybe That's moment. That's interesting. You know, because yeah. it is a funny right. bit, you know. Like even hippies and countercultural right. drug addicts still use ketchup. Everyone uses their, ketchup. On their French fries. That, yeah. that, you know, through, through this whole kind of diatribe of like, you know, we got to be subversive. We got to change things. You know, right. I'm going to do things differently. <laughs> oh, pass but, the ketchup. Just pass the ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I love that. That's a funny bit. That is. That's, that's good. Yeah. So I'm just going back to the beginning of the scene. I love the sort of old school in-camera effect that they used to show, to signify that Harvey had been working all mm -hmm. night, mm -hmm. that they had him sit down and they had the lighting down as if it were nighttime. And then he's working and there's no cuts. There's no, you know, fast forwarding or anything. All of a sudden the light comes up and they actually have birds tweeting, Yeah, you know. And then he's like, you get this idea, oh my God, he worked all through the night. And, and he, he rubs the sand out of his so, eyes. Yeah. Thing, yeah. And he was so focused and so intense. And it's a, it's a big counterpoint to the previous scene where he tried writing comics and read your comic and was just so Gives discouraged yeah. yeah, and gave up. So it was that moment of being in the, the previous scene, being in the supermarket with the old Jewish ladies where he had the eureka moment. Like this is, I'm here to tell stories about real life, about my life, my right. mundane, ordinary life. Right. And that was when the light bulb really went off. And we can see by his passion and his dedication and his ability to work like that, that something really did happen. Mm -hmm. And then we have this scene with Crumb, which is that big moment. Like, I, it's funny because I was always the artist and you were always the artist too, like going back to high school. Mm -hmm. But I kind of feel like I know that that moment very well like when you, there's a writer who is so amazed that you're going to draw their comics for them so and you had experience where a writer would show you a script or a story and they were waiting for you yeah to i mean decide. you must have had that moment many times where you you know the potential collaborators or people are like hey i have this great idea or someone you've you know, you, you you said you would work with in the past that they'd work maybe with other, other artists, but you'd never worked with them. And right. there's always that moment when you're, as the artist, deciding, is this a project I want to be involved with? Right. You know? I mean, I remember as all of us as friends, we worked, in, did our own comics in high school and yeah. stuff. And some of us collaborated or crossed, mm -hmm. you know, crossed over to doing other, you know, books. Like I remember working a little bit on Eric Waldman's Rogue Star and Quasar, you know, mm -hmm. and, and Mike, you said Tempest and I had my comics, you had yours. Yeah. But I do remember 
meeting a guy back when we would write letters to like these little comic book clubs you'd find out about. And at some point, you would get someone's phone number. And there was this guy, Martin Powell, that I worked with right. on a character called The Verdict that we yeah. collaborated on. That was and your first professionally published work, That's right. right? That's yeah. right. And I think it was 1987. And but that's impossible because we would have been like five years old in that's 1987. Right. I was five <laughs> years old in 1987. Uh, <laughs> And I graduated from high school. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But but there was like, uh, I do remember like, you know, the thrill of getting a script and then pouring over it and seeing what I thought and how I could contribute it right. to it. And then, you know, hearing on the other end of the of the phone or, you know, and through a letter, their thrill back, right. you know, because you got to you got yeah. like you it to like it. You have to both be it. excited about it. To Absolutely. And that's what happens here is that in an odd way. Crumb is somewhat excited, even mm -hmm. though he doesn't really show it. Yeah. You know, it's what he says. Right. You know, and it allows Harvey to kind of give us what Crumb won't. Yeah. You know, in a way. And I feel like that is actually the kind of thing that we've unlocked in this podcast is mm. that because I've had to do some research and I've gone back and looked at Crumb's career, I, I talked about this a little bit a couple episodes ago. He was sort of in a down time of his own career in 1975 where the underground comics movement was really kind of petering out and he was a little bit just disgruntled with what he was doing mm. in comics and searching for like other ways to express himself in comics so this takes place in 75 this takes place in 75 okay. and so the fact that this was when Harvey and Crumb started collaborating came at the exact moment when Crumb would have been open to it because he really hadn't done much collaborations to speak of up to right. this point. And why Harvey Picard? You know, well, there sure. was something that he did see mm -hmm. in Harvey's work that to him said there are new directions that I even haven't explored mm -hmm. yet in this form. Mm -hmm. And he was also at a vulnerable moment or a down moment where he was searching for just something to get him out of his funk. And it so circles, it was kind of like a double... And it circles back to the very first scene in the movie where the kids in the costume, the Halloween, you know, and wearing the costumes. Right. And, you know, what are you supposed to be? Harvey yeah. Picard? Mm -hmm. Well, he now is his own hero. That's true. Yeah. You know, or becomes his own hero in a way. You know? Right. But and, he's like the ultimate anti-hero. I mean, he's like right. not even an anti-hero. He's something that's... That, that Blase. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like he's just, just a guy, yeah. you know. And it really is a big deal. I mean, I know we keep hitting on this, but... And and there obviously there are people who are going to say, well, there are antecedents to this, and there were other comics sure. that have been done in previous uh, decades mm -hmm. about regular people, and but nothing had really hit on it and captured the zeitgeist in a way that Harvey's work really did and does. And we're also responding to the sustainability of this, like right. for how many years did exactly. he do this? Exactly, thirty or more. You yeah. Know? So yeah. I mean, it's incredible. That, you know, that could have been a failed experiment, if you think about it. Sure. You know, and that's, like, that's basically what those other comics were, were failed experiments. Right, right. Somehow he hit on the right combination of him being from Cleveland, the, him really having a mundane life and right. making sure to never focus on like moments that really stood above, you know, the rest of life right. in terms of him, like, you know, saving an old lady from, you know, being hit by a car or something like that. Like he didn't, I'm sure everyone has those kind of moments. Right. He chose really to never focus on those at least for the first you know decade right. of his comics career and it wasn't into and he never made enough of a living off of it even when he retired from the va hospital later mm -hmm. like it was always a side project right as much as he was impassioned by it yeah this is not what made his living until you know the movie probably gave him a chunk of change and then yeah us working together at DC Comics and, you know, and after that, he was able to make somewhat of a living, But he I was think. still, like, working, you know, 
10 different projects at once. Right. Right. And always sort of, you know, freaking out about money and having right. to support not only Joyce, but then he had this foster child. Spoiler alert, we'll get into that later. Right. Um, but yeah, just to go back to that excitement, I, and, and you were talking about high school, I remember when I was doing Blade, my superhero that I was writing and penciling. Not the vampire hunter or whatever no, no, from Marvel. No, I Different never Blade. even knew about that guy. Yeah. Anyway, when I was drawing that, we had this friend, this other comics guy named Todd Dixon, who was only an inker. That was like his specialty (laughs) in high school. But he was like the best artist out of all of us. Well, he was a good inker. I don't even remember I ever ever saw his actual art. No, his actual art was great. It was close to like John Byrne. Yeah, well, his inking was Terry Austin. I mean, he basically was Terry Austin as a 16-year-old high school kid. And he was way advanced in in, in terms of skill set from all of us. Yes. He He could do that feathering thing. Yeah, and it was John Byrne's up, but he he couldn't say Byrne's name right. It was always John Bryan. And it was always funny, John Bryan, right, you know. Right. I hope Todd's listening to this. Hi, Todd. Yeah. So, but but that excitement and disbelief that Harvey has on his face, which is which Paul Giamatti has on his face, is so great because that to me was the moment when Todd agreed to ink Blade for me. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, he, what? Are you serious? You will ink the whole comic? You know, for you, you'll make my stuff look good. And it was uh, it was that same feeling of like this guy is elevating what otherwise would be my you know mundane work to the heights you know and that must have been that's what i see in paul giamatti's face when crumb agrees to to illustrate his comics right and conversely because we're talking about high school and and inking collaborations and whatnot i remember when i penciled uh, some of uh, eric waldman's rogue star comic and i brought him in one day and i don't know what possessed him to do this but he drew like funny mustaches on every character including in ink in ink no. Including the, at lunchroom. That's what led to the fight and, and the then suspension, we right? We had a big fight. We threw each other, uh, you know, <laughs> over the walls and into into tables and whatnot. And then we both went to the principal's office and we had a three day, you know, suspension. But by before we even left the school that day, we were friends again. You were already friends. You again. know, yeah. he apologized. I think he was just <laughs> mad at me for some reason. And but it was his characters, and I had spent it's time so drawing strange. his characters. Yeah. Anyway, so that's really funny. Yeah. But yeah, that face that Giamatti makes is so great because at first you can't even tell. Is he crying? Is he able, yeah, is he crying? He's not. He's like forgotten how to smile. So he makes like this weird grimace and then yeah. it slowly dawns in him that this is actually happening. Yeah. And I love the fact that he says, after he says, wow, man, you know, which actually causes people in the diner to like turn around and mm-hmm, look at him. Mm-hmm. He says, that's great because I can't even draw a straight line, <laughs> which again is opening the idea that he was considering actually drawing these things himself. Right. You know, like there right. was, it was either crumb or nothing. Right. And that is that moment of like yep. crumb cured him because he not only cures him of his laryngitis, but right. he actually has opened the door to him having a, a way to, to have that right. testament to life. And also, I think it's such a misnomer to ever say, I can't draw a straight line when no Nobody one can, can draw, draw a straight line. That's what rulers are for. That's what rulers right? are for. <laughs> but I do love this moment. I think we, we talked a little bit about this in the green room beforehand, how this, in a way, is exactly not the kind of scene that Harvey Picar ever would have written in an American Splendor comic, because it's sort of that cathartic moment it's that it's that moment where the you know the the story shifts from the act one to act two 
or, or where the big change happens, where the, 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 the deus ex machina, you know, mm -hmm. like everything hinged on this one moment and everything mm -hmm. changed from that point forward. This is where Harvey, like Columbus, has discovered a new world and where he has this partner who's going to, you know, help him on this voyage. And I can't recall ever an actual American Splendor story where there was such an easy solution to a dilemma. Like he never would have written a story that would have had this kind of a moment. I find the payoff terrific and it, for in the movie context it really works really well and I enjoy it. Right. But I do feel like this is the scenes where um, maybe even Harvey himself and certainly American Splendor aficionados feel like it cheapens, you know, the experience Possibly, of, of the actual comics. I mean, I do think I don't know if Harvey ever read Raymond Carver, but the few Raymond Carver stories I've read, I mm -hmm. know that it's an interesting kind of experience because he too does not put in the moment that explains the story or there's the eureka moment it, it's you have to do some work as a reader to read between the lines as it were to find out what the story is about you know and it it often ends in a way where well it just ended this is the end like what just happened you know mm -hmm. and i'm not saying that uh harvey was that abstract but i think you're right that like he Probably, it would be interesting to see him take this scene and write his version of it. Even if it didn't exactly happen that way, mm -hmm. like how would he take that as an exercise and portray it in his comic? But for movie context, it totally makes sense. Right. It's, the, it's teaching the audience, you know, about these two guys and what could happen next and that this is really important. Right. But I think that actually is a perfect segue to the question that I, you know, sort of want to get to. And I feel like is something that the the filmmakers were very aware of and anyone who's watching this movie would be is, is always surprised to know is that Harvey P. Carter was not an artist himself and that he had all these collaborators and all mm -hmm. these partners that he worked with mm -hmm. who he depended on throughout his entire career because whenever I mention Harvey Picar or American Splendor to someone who kind of you know is on the periphery of comics they mm -hmm. like yeah I know about that guy and they sometimes I've even heard him called a cartoonist mm -hmm. which is just not a correct term. A Same thing for Stan Lee. Who Pe writes and draws. Yeah, people think Stan Lee wrote and drew the Marvel Universe. Right. You know, I mean, a lot because Stan Lee tooted the comics horn with his name attached to everything. Right. Stan Lee presents, so right, on and right, so right. forth. But yeah, I think you're right. And it's interesting because I think 10 years ago, I still think people understood that there was collaborations. Mm -hmm. But because we have more graphic novels coming out by single authors or yeah. auteurs, you yes. know, that they would now maybe conflate the fact that you know maybe it, it, the writer is also the artist you right know? And, so. th and that is kind of the the other thing that is interesting about american splendor as a representation of non-mainstream comics is mm -hmm. that it actually was constructed these stories were made in the same way that mainstream comics are with a writer and an artist right and most alternative underground comics were done by a single person cartoonist so it is it is it can be confusing in that way so it's funny he is such an outlier for mainstream comics he was also an outlier for underground comics right exactly you think about it cuz yeah. he wasn't working within the right. constraints of the rules as it were yeah i mean it does take a sort of a leap of faith to say i can't draw worse shit yet i have 
the revolutionary idea for comics. It's well, it's, change things. It, it's, it's actually a ballsy scene yeah. because he's going to crumb his pal, mm -hmm. but also... He's kind of taking advantage of their friendship in a way. In a way, yeah. but, you know, and then that also reminds me of, like, people I know mm -hmm. in my life that, yep. you know, you, you're afraid or too shy to ask, yes. hey, could you, do you want to work together? What, you, you mean know? you feel that way about them? Like people who you see as sort of higher on the on yeah. the scale than you. Yeah. But, of course, you've had the, you've had the other yes. relationship tons of times, I'm yes. sure, where someone right. who you know socially right and has nothing to do with comics right all of a sudden has an idea for a comic and they ask you or they ask your advice for something and there's always these moments where you're like oh, okay now i'm i'm yeah. being not taken advantage of but right. there's this moment of like oh yeah i'm their friend who's a comic book artist and so they're going to ask me to work with them now and, and i've come up with with answers that are the respectful i mean yeah. the, the, the most you know recent current one is I want to write what I draw right now if possible. Mm -hmm. It's important to me, you know, yeah. to not be, because I'm known as an artist, I want to be known as a writer. Right. And, and, and I have stories to tell. Same thing with me. But yeah, no, I've definitely had situations recently where it's, it's something just happened on LinkedIn recently where, and I don't really use that and I don't really update it. I but don't know if anyone has ever actually used link, LinkedIn, LinkedIn to get a job. Well, who but knows? I guess it, it, I, it must I work because it's still out there. It's still out there, but, but someone friended me and immediately within one minute of me accepting because they're an, a local artist whatever and I was yeah. like fine I don't care like that's cool they're like can you get me this publisher can you get me to this oh, I'm like whoa geez. whoa whoa wow. we don't even know we're each other we're not even actual friends yeah. yeah yeah that's happened on Facebook to me quite a number of yeah, times yeah all these yeah. social networking you know it's it's a way to get it's that close way, to you exactly exactly and on the one hand that's actually cool to, that that's a good problem to have you know it means that I'm doing well enough that somebody wants my advice. Sure. You know, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So that's cool. Right. Well, that's that's a nice way. That's like the half glass full way of looking at this, yeah. you know, thing where it feels like every day someone is approaching you for a favor right. due to your position, you know. In and that's kind of what the scene is a little bit about. What, what it, it's ballsy on many levels because even though it's understated, because it's Picar realizing there's this like giant in front of me. Right. You know? Exactly. And it's recognizable. Exactly. Yeah, a known quantity, and I'm about to like you know ruffle some feathers here. Right, but at least they were legitimate friends, and yes. that was something that they did establish earlier right. in the film, where they showed going back to 1963, I think it was sure. that they just hung around and right. and listened to music together and talked and. But then it's ballsy you know. because oh, you want to be your own hero and write about just the common man thing. Right. Like, right. what are you talking about? Yeah, you know, and and I think that's what peaked. Crumb's interest. Mm -hmm. this, I haven't seen this. Right. This hasn't, you know, not really. Like you said, there might be cases, you know, of, well, it's not, it not necessarily failed experiments. They, maybe they didn't decide to do any more of those, you mm -hmm. know, but it, it, we're talking about peak. For whatever but, reason, this took off and became right, a thing. Right. I also just wanted to mention that when Harvey is working at this little desk that he's created, you know, this little workspace that he has, they're playing this kind of soft uh, jazz piano music which i don't know what that was but it segues into when he finishes when morning comes and he proudly looks at the work that he's created and it segues to the next scene at shay's diner in cleveland which is an actual place that they filmed it in this jay mcshan song uh blue devil jump comes mm -hmm. on and it's like the third or fourth jay mcshan song that we've heard in the movie already and i think that pretty much every time they play Jay McShann is when Harvey and Crumb are together. So it's almost like it's their their love theme is Jay McShann. You know? And didn't you say that that was the record that, that was they were I, It's not over? the same exact record, but it's a Jay McShann record. It's right. the same artist. Right. 
and it's sort of like Jay McShann is their personal uh, musician. Yeah, so the only other thing I noticed, I was listening to the DVD commentary, and at one point Harvey himself, Harvey Picard in the commentary, mentions that his stick figure, his scripts, as he put them, are more sophisticated than the stick figures that they showed on screen. And uh, what do you say to that? Uh, they look the <laughs> we same to me. We did talk about it, yeah. I feel like uh, if that was actually Paul Giamatti, making those stick figures then he did a really good impression of harvey picard's stick figures because yeah. they look pretty similar it's uncanny, it's uncanny <laughs> how he was able to ape harvey's style <laughs> yeah i mean i mean again we worked with harvey later like mid to to the mid final 90s, years up until and his death pretty those, much that's yeah. what i saw was yep, that me too so me too now you, you briefly you said something about collaborators i know in the movie we only get to meet two of his collaborators right in terms of people who are seen on screen. Yes. Right. Right. I, I mean, you see other art that's styles. That's true. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, I, and not that the movie had to do a scene of like how he found other collaborators. But, I mean, obviously, Crumb was his most famous collaborator. But he did work with a lot of interesting collaborators, you know. And, and again, a lot of that was the source material for this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if they get credited in, in, in the credits or anything like that, but... I don't believe so. I'm just looking on Wikipedia, and just on Wikipedia, there are 42 artists who are credited as having worked with Harvey Picar. Oh, interesting. And that has got to just be, a, you know, maybe less than half of the actual number of collaborators that he had, because there's so many people that he worked with who don't have Wikipedia pages. I mean, I think there were like 42 people who worked with him when he was published at Vertigo for two miniseries. Yeah, so I would say it's up over 100 people, I would think, Possibly. during his yeah. career. I mean, yeah. it, even who just did one story or one one-pager. Right. I mean, Alan Moore once illustrated That's a right. Harvey Picard story. Joyce illustrated a Harvey oh Picard story. Yeah, so... I don't think I've ever seen that. They got into some interesting collaborations, for sure. But Harvey never illustrated any of his stories. He never drew well, one he himself. Well, in a way. The all stick his, figures? All the scripts. All the scripts. Yeah, they should collect those, anthologize yeah. those. Or at least some of them to see how, <laughs> how, how an artist interpreted those. That's true. You know, yeah, so. you know, I have some of his original scripts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I bet. I wonder how much those are on eBay. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Authenticate. I have to get a stamp from Joyce <laughs> right. or something. That's right. And now we have a special edition to this episode of Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. An interview with James Urbaniak, the actor who plays Robert Crumb in American Splendor. We're so excited to have James in the pod. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So... I guess, first of all, you could just tell us about your involvement with the film and how you were cast. Sure. Uh, I auditioned for the movie. I got an audition that came in. And uh, normally these auditions come in and you go, well, I'll just do the best I can. I think I got an email saying you're auditioning for a movie called American Splendor for the role of Robert Crumb. And I thought, oh, my God, this part is mine. No one else can play this part. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I was really determined. (laughs) <laughs> so you had knowledge already. Yeah, well, when I was around 18, like right at the end of high school, I thought about going to art school and becoming a cartoonist or oh. illustrator of some sort. In fact, I got a brochure from the Joe Kubert School in uh, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, I ended up going to a community college and kind of getting into acting and theater. But 
I always drew and I was always into comics and I wasn't so much into like superhero comics, but I was into like illustration and I was always interested in sort of, for lack of a better word, alternative type comics, you know. Right. Do you guys know Bob Sikoriak? He's a cartoonist in New York. Yeah, we both know him very well. I don't know if you knew this, but Bob and I were roommates in the uh, in the nineties, oh, in like the I early nineties. No, from like ninety one to ninety three, we mm, shared okay. a place on Lower Broadway. Bob had a bunch of uh, American Splendors. He had a bunch of the original Splendors. He also had a lot of original Zap comics. Mm-hmm. And I knew Harvey Picard because I'd. I'd seen him on Letterman during the original Letterman interviews right? where he was okay. such a compelling and bizarre figure because he was someone who just didn't belong on TV, which is kind of why he did belong on TV, basically. Exactly. And I remember <laughs> because I, since I was age 12, I wanted to be a comic book artist. And later on, I decided to be a, also a comic book writer. But I remember that Harvey Picard was the first comic book writer I ever saw. And I was kind of freaked out. I was like, that's what a comic book writer looks like and acts like? So <laughs> yeah. strange. And of course, it didn't connect that he was a very unique auteur in, in a lot of ways. So yeah, no, it was, it was amazing to see him on Letterman. And when I and like when I was a young person in like the early, I think we're all around the same age. I'm 55. So it's a sort of similar generational yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all the brown the same age. Yeah. Yep. So yep. I remember like reading Raw magazine and mm-hmm. which Bob actually was in some of the early issues. And just I kind of got into that kind of alt world and then sort of the earlier generation. So I, I, I admired Crumb and then I loved the American Splendor comics because they were just so right. unique and strange. So then when you got this casting call, you were really uh, motivated to get this role. Yeah, I was compelled to the point of cockiness. I was like, come on, who else are they going to cast? I'm, I know who these guys are. I can draw. Uh, I'm, I'm skinny and I have brown hair. Who else are you going to have play crumb? <laughs> Do you happen to know who else tried out for the role? Do you happen to know? I know at least one guy uh, in New York. I know the actors like to hear about not getting roles, so I won't say his name. But suffice it to say, he's okay. very successful. He's very successful. He's on a show now and he's a good guy. But I had become okay. friends with this guy in New York for like a couple of years. And then one day he just said to me, oh, by the way, do you know that I auditioned for Crumb in American Splendor? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I hilarious. went in. I had a friend who was into hats. So I borrowed like a fedora from him. <laughs> mm. I kind of mm-hmm. dressed up, you know, in nice. a Crumb-like way. And I showed up, as uh, I'm sure you know, Dean. the the uh, The auditions were at Good Machine downtown. Yep. That's and right. the first, the that's right. do you remember what date the first day of auditions were? No, I don't. Was it September 11th? September 10th, 2001. Oh my god! Oh, that's right. Little, uh, that's not really right. a fun oh fact, but a fact. <laughs> right. And yeah. the audition went very well, and then. I was called back like a month later because for like four weeks, basically it was illegal to go downtown unless you lived there. <laughs> I know, so, I know, I remember. So that. I finally yeah. went back for a callback, and then uh, which was really like three weeks later, right. and then I got it, and uh, it was a thrill. It was a real thrill to get that. Yeah, we have a bunch of questions about that. Like for instance, one of the things I was wondering about is. You obviously met Harvey on set. You must have, right? Oh yes, yes. That was a, a Harvey was a real sweetheart to me on the set. And so my question to you is: Did he give you any tips of how to portray Crumb at all, or did he just did he dig what you were doing? Like, what was the reaction? 
No, well, the first time I met him was I, we were shooting uh, the diner scene, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. and he oh, was he was around. I don't have any scenes with him in the film. My scenes are all just with Paul. You know, I'm not in any of those documentary sequences or anything. But he was on the set the day I shot that, and I went through makeup and wardrobe, and I walked on the set in my costume, and Harvey looked at me and got a big smile on his face and said in his raspy voice, there he is. There's the guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's great. There he is. There's the guy. And he was just so warm and encouraging. And then he watched us shoot the scene. And he said, ah, you were so great. He was so complimentary. And then later he came up to me and said, I called Bob and I told him you're in, he's in good hands. <laughs> that's wow. Great. That's really, that's an amazing testimonial there. But yeah, no, he just gave me great feedback and was a very warm person, despite his, his reputation for being a curmudgeon. <laughs> so I guess my, the, the, it begs the question, did, did you ever hear a response from Crumb? about your performance? Well, I do have an answer to that question. Uh, It's a two-part answer. So a couple years after the movie came out, Crumb published a book. I forget what it was called, but it's sort of an autobiography. It's it's all like hand-lettered, and it has excerpts from his career and photos and comics, and then sort of autobiographical stories about his life that he's hand-lettered. I I think it's called like the Robert Hmm. Crumb Handbook or something like that. Anyway, a friend of mine saw this book and he sent me an email and it said, Robert Crumb book, whatever the title was, page 273. And I looked at this email. That was the entire contents of the email. And I thought, okay, that means he refers to American Splendor on that page. I could tell that's what my friend meant. (laughs) So- (laughs) I went downtown to Forbidden Planet, this is a few years ago, uh, mm. on Lower Broadway, and I knew the book had just come out, and I opened the book up, and there is a photo of me in American Splendor. And then on the top of the page, it mm. says, I thought the guy was a washout as me, and I thought, oh, no. And then I turned the page <laughs> and realized he wasn't talking about me. He's talking about various people who've portrayed him there were a couple of plays done, like there was a play done in San Francisco in the 70s or something, where Robert Crumb is mm-hmm. a character. And so he's talking about that play and referring to the actor in the play, he says, I thought the guy was a washout as me. So that phrase didn't refer to me. So I was relieved. Then I got tense again, because then he's going to talk about the movie. And then he says, so there was this movie, American Splendor, and a guy played me. I don't think he even says my name in the book. And he goes, uh, uh, my wife hated it. And she said, if I was anything like that in real life, uh, she never would have married me. And then he just goes on. (laughs) So so Aileen didn't like it. And then he doesn't say anything. And and then he goes on to the next topic. And I thought, wait a minute. That's praise from our crumb. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. No news is good news. (laughs) If the only negative thing he's saying is my wife didn't like it. And then he doesn't express an opinion. I feel like that was his version of saying, yeah, then he was fine. Yeah, you, you're in the clear, my friend. You're yep. in the clear. <laughs> well done. You did good. <laughs> and then there's a there's a second half to that story. A few years after that, I'm living in LA 
And my friend, a guy named Todd Alcott, who uh, is the guy who told me about the book, we are both living in LA now, and Robert Crumb is going to make a rare appearance in the United States. He's promoting his illustrated book of Genesis mm, yeah. at uh, UCLA. So we go to see him speak. And uh, I think Francois Mouly was the uh, moderator. And um, he speaks about the book. And then at the end of the thing, they do a Q&A. And I'm sitting in the audience and someone in the audience says, what did you think about your portrayal in the movie American Splendor? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, no. Oh, he doesn't know I'm in the audience. Oh, no. No, one, no one notices me. Right. Someone else asked this question. And Crumb says, well, you know... I'm me, so I wouldn't think anyone was like me. But my wife hated it, and she said, "If uh, I if I was like that in real life, she never would have married me." Right. And right. then he moves on. Right. So he said the same he thing. Exactly. <laughs> he, he stayed on message. <laughs> so that was it. I did. I was in the same room with him once, a very large auditorium, uh, but he didn't know I was there, and uh, he said the same thing. But I once met Sophie, his daughter, Sophie Crumb, and uh, she was very nice to me. I kind of sh- I was I was at a comic book thing with some friends and someone said you've got to go talk to her, and I said I went up to her very sheepishly and said hey I'm that guy who I played your dad in that movie American Splendor and she went oh yeah that was really weird <laughs> yeah and then she said but from some angles you really looked like him so <laughs> she was very sweet to me <laughs> so that's it but I'm surprised yeah. you were in a room with Crumb and you didn't go up to him. Well, no, it was we were. It was in a giant auditorium at UCLA, and okay. uh, right. after the show, he went backstage, and I left the building. There was no, and there was no way I was going to jump up and go, "Hey, that was me!" during the Q and A. It was, it was. <laughs> oh, that that would have been the best moment. It was Robert Crumb's night. Not, it wasn't mine to uh, interrupt. Of course, no. I mean, yeah. I've yet to meet. I don't think Josh. Have you ever met Crumb? I've never met Crumb. I've never. We I, both of us. We worked for Harvey on many, many comics, but neither of us have ever met Crumb. And I know he was here recently, like a week or two ago, here in in Manhattan. Uh, I think oh. they were celebrating a collection of of weirdo. I think they collected all the weirdos or something. Yes, yes, and weirdo. He was at a gallery. And I wish I had known because I might, I just need to shake his hand once, you know, and just say hi. Oh, yeah. Thing, you know, he, he doesn't seem like a handshaker. <laughs> no, he seems like he'd give you the limp uh, fish kind of yeah. thing if you touch his right. hand. And shrink away at the same time. Yeah. Although I did read an article recently in The Guardian that he, uh, he is at age 75, he has stopped drawing women and he won't look at other women, apparently. I see. So. That's the new. Is wrinkle. that by choice or because that is he's by just... choice? Uh, and he said his libido has started to chill out a little bit, so that's good. I see. All right. Well, and that just that does happen to uh, dovetail with certain cultural uh, issues that may affect exactly. him as well. So there exactly. you go. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. Good for him. <laughs> this whole conversation then leads to the obvious question, which is, what were your, you know, going in to the movie, what was your research or what was your uh, agenda or, or, you know, as, as you were preparing? Yeah. yeah. Cause I got the part and then I think we had like over a month before we shot. So I had like several mm. weeks to really immerse myself, which I did. Well, obviously I watched the Zweigoff documentary, like a loop in my apartment yeah. Yeah. at the time, uh, which is a masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, oh, Terry didn't like me in the movie. I read an interview with someone and asked him about me and that. And he he said he didn't like the actor who played him. 
But I understand that because if someone played like my best friend in a movie, I'm sure I would think it was ridiculous too. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I love that film. And, and then I also found some other video and audio. I found one audio in the 80s. He was doing a lot of interviews hmm. and I found a great radio interview where for a lot of the interview, he talked about his time in San Francisco, and he actually has a very gentle, wistful quality in this particular hmm. interview, because he loved being in San Francisco in the 60s. And he speaks of it very fondly, and it's a very different part of his personality. It's an aspect you don't see in the Zweigoff documentary, where he's, he, you know, in, that, in the documentary, Crum is very aware that he's on camera. He already seems to be a somewhat aloof person, but he's definitely being extra aloof and sort of detached and sort of performing an idea of who he is for That's the camera. That's interesting you say that because when I was, when I went to SUNY Purchase and studied film, one of the things they taught us in documentary class was the minute a camera is turned on, everyone starts to perform or starts to not necessarily be exactly who they are. And Totally. Yeah, so that makes sense. Even though that documentary is being made by an old friend of his, he doesn't come off as particularly warm in that film. But in this one interview, his voice sort of has a a gentler, like I say, sort of wistful quality. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. thought, well, that's great because in the movie American Splendor, the character of R. Crumb is not on camera. He's just hanging out with his friend. Right. And he's also, you know, for part of it, he's younger and not as jaded. There you are know. intimate moments you have uh, with the, you know, with the Harvey character yeah. that you get to have, except for that one moment later on when you ride the back of that girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there was something about hearing his voice ha- with a, having a more unguarded quality that was so interesting. And I listened to that interview a lot. Also, just to hear his sort of dialect, he's, you know, he's got that kind of like sort of Baltimore, Philly, South Jersey mm-hmm. thing going on. I forget where mm-hmm. he grew up. Mm-hmm. It's it like was around, outside of Philly. It was outside of Philly. So yeah, there's he's got a little bit of that kind of Philly, Baltimore vowel thing going on, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he mm-hmm. just, he just, he kind of, where you kind of swallow the vowels, but he also, he's such an internal figure. His, his energy is very inward and i was shy as a young person but i became an actor and became kind of a chatty extrovert and i've got this kind of Mm. loud voice so that was fun was to kind of really pull the voice inside you know it's more of a like yeah much more internal and then also i just read i read as much of his comics as i could because as we know they're very autobiographical and another document that was very useful was uh, the collection of his teenage correspondence called, uh, it's called like your your Vigor for Life Applause oh, Me or right. something like that. that. And it's basically him as a teen fanboy writing to his friends. Today, he'd be texting and emailing them, but it's all letters and they're writing it. Did you see the new Mad, Jack Davis did the new Mad cover. Did you see it? You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a wonderful document of his sort of teenage enthusiasms. James, did you, would you say that you helped kind of not correct the script, but add to the script by by steeping in like doing all that homework? Did, did you kind of change the script a little bit to kind of go with the way he might vocalize or the alliteration? Yeah, I added a couple of little sort of crumisms, like phrases that he I saw him use in interviews that I kind mm. of put in and Bob and Sherry were wonderful. They're so talented mm. and they were so purely collaborative and they were like, you've clearly immersed yourself in this and have a lot to say about 
this character do it. They Fill it in. You. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they were just collaborative. So I would say I just expanded what was on the page. And it was already a very witty script. And again, when you're playing a real person, no matter who you're playing, part of you wants to honor whatever specific qualities. Certainly with Crumb, there are very idiosyncratic qualities like his voice and his bearing that you have to kind of play. But on the other hand, you're also playing a character in a movie. You're not playing Robert Crumb, the man, his mother's son, and his wife's husband. And you know what I mean? <laughs> You're playing yeah, a character right. that's influenced by him. And that the character I'm playing in that movie is there to tell us something about Harvey Picar. So, well, also I, I thought it was really cool how you were able to basically like, you could have done a parody of Crumb because Crumb already is like almost doing a, par- a parody of himself yeah, right. in a way based on the, <laughs> that's and true. you did a really, res- it was very respectful. I thought what you did. And again, you brought a more of an intimacy to a Crumb that a lot of people hadn't seen before. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, that that, you know? that means a lot. And yeah, but Bob and Sherry were really open to all the ideas I had. And and it was just so, Paul uh, was so, we had so much fun acting together. But I think that, like Bob and Sherry also wanted, the way it's scripted, they've definitely written Crumb as that sort of aloof figure that you see in the Zweigoff film. And they definitely wanted that quality present. So that's there as right. well, you know, but we're just trying to find all the colors. But I got to say, all the actors, everyone in that movie is playing a very extreme character. Right. You know, Joyce is such a, she just has such a specific personality and quality. And Hope yes. really captures that so beautifully. And Judah is brilliant as Toby. Unbelievable. Uh, you know, where uh, that's another case where a lesser actor could make that seem more of just a sort of surface parody. Because right. again, Toby seems like a comic book character himself. And right. so, there, but that's definitely Bob and Sherry wanting to create a, a world where it's kind of bold in a way where you're seeing the actors play these people and then you're seeing the real people at the same time. That was the groundbreaking moment for me in the, in the, in the movie was when they're, they're yeah. finishing a scene and then they go to that white space where that that dimension where there's the crossover between the, re- the reality and, and the fiction, as it were. And that and then watching Paul and Judah observing the real Harvey yeah. and, and real Toby interacting over those jelly beans and whatnot. And it was incredible to watch. It, it kind of takes you out of the movie, oh, but at the same time puts you right back into a the, what the movie ultimately is about is like identity. Yeah. And we all like I remember like. Harvey Joyce was there. Their daughter was there. Right. And they were such warm people and everyone loved them. I remember in particular Judah and Toby really bonding. Like uh, Judah was very fond of Toby, Mm. you know, really respected him. Judah's a very warm person. And Paul like really got on with Harvey. And it was just, it was so great to see all these people interacting. And, you know, the real people were very happy that the thing was being made. And the Mm -hmm. actors were all very excited by the, Mm-hmm. by the material mm-hmm. so it was just it was such a unique experience and and it landed big time like they made a great movie Huge. <laughs> they really great. did it's great i have a couple of like follow-up questions related to that mm-hmm. so one was i thought it was a really interesting like opportunity you had as the as a supporting character in the movie to sort of have a, a character arc in yourself because you know when you're first introduced you're this unknown guy toiling away at, at this uh, yeah. greeting card company. And then we see 
you know, your character going through these changes and becoming popular and successful, and then even coming out on the downside in a sense, like when you come back to meet Harvey again in, in 75 and even at the diner, in a way you, you're already like over it, you know, you're over your own fame and, and sort of wondering what, what's next for you. And so I just thought that you yeah. played that really well, like that really came across in a very subtle way, but the, you know, each scene you sort of progress. Um, and it's doubly interesting to me. And I know this is the way movies are often shot, but it, you're saying that you shot a lot of those scenes out of order. So it must have been a, a whole other task for you to not only, you know, think about that development, but to also sort of work it backward in a sense as you're acting. It, yeah, it, those were shot out of sequence. It, it was just why I have, it was a really good fake mustache, but that I have a fake mustache in the movie. It was, it was, the makeup <laughs> people were very good. It looks very real. It was actually applied in pieces. <laughs> but because like we shot some of them, he grows the mustache later when he's more successful, but then we shot like the first meet the first scenes when we're younger and meet for the first time where Crumb is clean shaven. Right. So right. the mustache had to be fake. That was fun. I remember like the the day that we shot the scene where uh, I meet Harvey at the uh, like that yard mm-hmm. sale. It just happened that it rained that day. And they actually, they put thunder on the soundtrack for the opening of that shot, but it wasn't scripted as it's raining. It was just, they meet at this place, but it was so perfect. And you can't, it's it's actually raining while we shot, but rain doesn't really photograph well. So it wasn't raining that hard, but it was raining. So you can't really see it on on camera. You can see a few drops here and there. But I think it's so perfect because it just adds this little element of like, wow, (laughs) Harvey and Bob will trudge out in the rain to look for deals on old jazz records, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was so perfect. We did speak to Eli Ganias, who is the actor who introduces Harvey to you in the scene. He was in a, in a play that I wrote, and at one point we were talking, because he's a comics fan as well, and he's like, you know I was in American Splendor, right? I was like, what are you talking about? And he plays the guy. Yeah, right, right. Guy says, this is my buddy, Bob Crumb. Yep. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And and he had told us that the weather was lousy that day too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but um yeah, that that was like it is funny how like there's this meeting of two great creators in, in a yard sale looking at old records, you know, that that's what's great about that scene. Yeah, I always loved that moment where Eli says to you, you know, Harvey's a comics fan too, and uh, Paul Giamatti takes this like fighting stance with you, like he gets down <laughs> low and <laughs> he's like, "Oh yeah," you know, and you just look at him like <laughs> and sort of shake your head. Uh, it's just a great little moment, great introduction to the yeah, two of you. yeah. And then it segues into this really beautiful scene of just two guys relaxing together, listening to music, reading quietly. You know, we Dean and I were talking about how that's just like not a a thing that people do anymore like friends is just kind of hang out together and and not talk but read quietly and listen to some quiet jazz and maybe once in a while have a a little comment you know there's a great moment in that movie i remember being a young guy and you just hang you would listen to records with your friends it was like a thing that we would do you just immersed with your pals you know that's a great scene where they're bonding. And I remember Bob and Sherry had a great note when we shot that, which was they were like, uh, Paul and James, don't make eye contact during this scene. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> that, that was great. like for me specifically. Because <laughs> it was great because they're, they're connecting, yet they're still, especially Crumb, 
uh, they're still kind of in their own worlds, you know. They're still these kind Absolutely. of socially awkward weirdos. Yeah, exactly. Did you and Paul do any kind of uh, side work where you sort of talked about, you know, developing that that rapport that really comes through in the film? I think we just it just kind of came naturally. I, I mean, I knew who Paul was. I hadn't met him right before I did the movie. I was doing a play in New York, and he and when I was cast, he came to see the play. And we hung it after that, and we were very excited to do it. And they're like, it was a typical film thing where there wasn't a, you kind of basically rehearse on the day that you shoot, you know. But I think we just found the rhythm and the energy very quickly on the set. And Bob and Shari, like I said, were so open and collaborative that, you know, it just worked. He had that that Harvey Pecor sort of, you know, kinetic, splenetic <laughs> <laughs> outward energy and the whole crumb thing was this inward so it was this very funny kind of comedy team kind of thing yeah with two totally. very different energies you had two guys who definitely belonged together as friends you know one of the other things that i really loved about the movie just because i i'm a cartoonist and um a lefty was that uh you know the shots of you drawing in the sketchbook as crumb you were drawing left-handed so i have one question is are you actually left-handed? And two, how much of the artwork did you actually do in those sketchbook drawings that we saw? Yes. Well, I am left-handed, and I knew that that's Crumb was why you were cast. That's why you were cast. <laughs> exactly. That was it. Yeah, because the other guy I knew from New York probably auditioned you were sketching with his right hand. They were like, "No, nope, forget it. No, nope, he's out." <laughs> yes. So that was just a happy coincidence where I didn't have to fake left hand. Uh, yeah, a guy who worked on the, I think it was actually a member of the crew. Like it might've, I forget who it was, but it was like a young guy who was like a member of the art department or something. And he did those sort of crumb-esque drawings when you see my sketchbooks. Like, as you know, they, they show shots of actual crumb art in the film. But when you see me with a sketchbook, it, that was drawn by a guy who worked on the movie. Yeah, we could tell those weren't actual crumb. Yeah, I'm an amateur cartoonist, but I'm not. I wasn't really. I was just kind of doing a little cross hatching and filling in here and there. You know, when you see mm -hmm. my hand in the shot. Nice. I had made a weird insight, James. That you know the scene where you're sitting uh, at the bus stop. Yeah. Yeah, it's when it's it's uh, Crumb's back in town, and uh, Harvey has just gotten divorced. His wife has just left him, and he's got the throat problem, and he doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life, and. Yeah, that's where Crumb is kind of humble, not humble bragging, but kind of bragging, complaining, you know. I got to yeah. see this chick in New York and I got all this stuff. Right. And, and Harvey's like, well, at least being a flunky file clerk. Exactly. And goes, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Great line. That's true. But it ends, oddly enough, with birds eating crumbs. And I just wondered if that was something that was intentional because I was thinking about our crumb and bird crumbs and... I mean, it must just be a weird coincidence, right? It wasn't like any kind of like uh, metaphor or visual kind of, uh, you know, period to the sentence or something like that. Do you remember anything about that? Well, wait, you're talking about like there's a little shot of some pigeons at the end of that? Yeah, or, pigeons uh... at the end eating eating crumbs, eating, you know, bread, I guess. That's a question. Well, that's a question for Bob and Sherry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My, my guess they, would they be they probably that... weren't even there then at that point. That was a, like a far away shot where you, you weren't maybe weren't even there. Like they might have had stand-ins right. or uh, nobody in the bus stop at all at that point. No, no, that was us in the bus stop. That far shot was definitely us. Oh, that was still you. Okay. 
But I, 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 I don't think the presence of pigeons eating crumbs was intended as a uh, as a visual pun of any sort or symbol. Oh, no. That's that's me groping and grasping for <laughs> extra meaning, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, man. Hey, it's not for me to say if it's if that's it's right. if artists create things they're not even aware of. So if it's there, yes, it's there, true. man. Those are the best moments. It's true. That's right. I guess I mean, if, unless there's anything more you can share about memories about working on the movie or, you know, I mean, I guess, did you do promotions for it uh, shortly thereafter? I mean, I remember going to the premiere. Yeah, and I, and I, I was at Sundance when it premiered there. That was exciting. In fact, Al oh, cool. Gore sat in front of me at the screening. Oh, wow. <laughs> for some bizarre reason. I think Al Gore would just like was with some people and they were like, we're going to see this film. And he went and I got to say, he has a very large head. If if Al Gore is in the <laughs> movie theater with you, don't sit behind him. Was that when he was premiering his uh, climate change movie? Maybe he might have been. Same... That might that was probably yeah. why he was there to promote that. And then I got a snapshot. It's it's amazing to think how much technology has changed in fifteen years. But because there were no camera phones back then, so someone took a snapshot right. of me with Al Gore. But it's been lost to time. Like I, I don't know where it went. <laughs> mm, mm. Too bad. <laughs> but yeah, that was a great time. And then, yeah, I mean, I just, I can only reiterate what I said. It really was one of the great experiences. You know, you know, you, as an actor, you just want to make a living, but then hopefully you get to do something that's challenging and that's also good, Yep. you know? And then when all those elements kind of come together, it's, it's actually rather rare. And yeah, I watched yep. it again last night with my wife. I hadn't seen it in years. I said to her, "Wow, this really is great, isn't it?" <laughs> like it I knew it holds was, up. It's incredible, but it really holds up. Yeah, and it, it's just the whole approach to it, Dean. I know you were sort of there from the very inception. Yeah. Well, I, I basically gave. See, I, I used to be Ted's assistant. It was one of my jobs at the time. You know, yeah. while becoming a budding cartoonist, and I was at his house. And by the way, uh -huh. yeah, Ted has a great cameo too as the voice of the Letterman Booker. He's the on voice the phone. for the guy calling about the Letterman. That's right. <laughs> So, so I was I was at his house, and I knew he was a comics fan as well. I, we, we, I think at the time he was shooting Ang Lee's Ice Storm. Ice Storm, Ice Storm, and I'm I'm in his house, and I know he's a comics fan. So I was organizing some stuff, and then I came across a bunch of scripts, and one of them was for Chester Brown's Yummy Fur, which was one of my favorite comics ever. Right, and there was a script for American Splendor. And I think it was just like a completely different iteration meant for a different actor. And I and I said to him, you know, I'm, I've worked with Harvey Pekar. I've worked on American Splendor and I'm in touch with him. And I think it'd be a great idea to make an American Splendor movie. And he went, you know Harvey? And I was like, yeah, do you want me to set up a phone yeah. call? And I gave him the idea of like, you know, pursuing making a movie and then hooked up a conversation. And then, as you know, like a year and a half later, it's a Sundance award-winning movie, you know? And, and it's incredible. That's amazing. What, yeah. What, what they did. So that was just basically my little, you know, kick in Ted's pants, as it were. But yeah, so but while we have you on the horn, like, what are you working on these days? Or what is there anything you want to promote or talk about? Oh, well, I have a, uh, I have a podcast. It's called Getting On with James Urbaniak. Basically, it's scripted radio plays, mm. basically. And I Is have you writing? Like, uh, Are you writing these? Yeah, I I have a writing partner named Bree Williams, and we write some of them, and then some of, the, and then some of them are written by writer friends of mine. 
And I did this for a couple of years, then kind of took a break. But Bring and I are bringing it back. It's going to be on the Starburns network. And we're excited. We're doing a new season of that. And we're actually, in the past, they've been kind of short form, short form stories. They're like around 15 minutes. They're these sort of standalone little radio plays, like mm-hmm. little one-act audio plays. But we're writing a kind of feature-length story. It's basically going to be like an audio movie. It'll be like 90 minutes. Wow. And we're very excited about that. So that'll probably be later in the spring. Right. And then, yeah, I'm just doing a bunch of, it's like a bunch of film and TV projects coming out. What I'm particularly excited about, it's funny, you mentioned Richard Linklater on your first episode. I'm in the next Rick Linklater movie. It's a movie called Where'd You oh, Go, Bernadette? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and I have a fun part in that. So I'm really excited. That's coming out in, in uh, August. It's based on a novel by Maria Semple. And uh, yeah, it's great. Kate Blanchett's in it, Billy Crudup. And you're still doing Venture Brothers? Venture Brothers is still going strong. Yeah, the boys are riding like the eighth season now. That's a crazy show because... We've done seven seasons, but the show's been on the air for 15 years because there's such a long turnaround between right. seasons. Oh, right? wow. <laughs> Adult Swim still supports that show, and that's been my main gig for a long time. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. It's great. So that's a great thing. What about theater? I do live okay. performing in L.A. sometimes, but it's mostly like – I know a lot of comedy people, so I'll be like a guest – in like right. comedy shows or improv shows, but those are usually just like one night kind of things, right, you know? Right, Kind of like what you did with Jason Little uh, a few weeks ago, I believe. Jason Little, one of my studio mates, did some kind of uh, 3D comics carousel type thing I think you were involved in. Yes, I, I did that with him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, Bob Sikoriak used to do those too. Oh, he still uh, does. Oh, yeah, he's that's the best. a big, big feature of his. Thank you so much. We really admired your performance in the film, and it's such a thrill to have you on the show. And well, thank and, you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Keep on keeping on. Keep on trucking, as Crumb yeah. might say. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thanks, James. Keep on podcasting. Well, that was very, very cool of James Urbaniak to join us. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Well, that about wraps up this episode. Remember, you can visit us at scenebyscenepodcast.com and scenebyscene on Facebook, where you can subscribe, download past episodes, read up on the show, check out our work, including all things Harvey Picar, and join the discussion. So until next time, when we'll be discussing episode 13, this is Josh Newfeld And Dean Haspiel. With Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. Yay!